and welcome to She's the Boss Chats. I'm your host, Jules Brooke, and in the show, I interview amazing women and female founders about what it is that they're doing and why they're doing it. It's all about us lifting up the women around us. Christina Ryan, I am beside myself with excitement to hear your story and share what you're up to with the listeners for this podcast. So um, thank you so much for agreeing to do the interview. Oh, thanks for having me, Jules. It's really great to be here. (laughs) What a pleasure. Okay, so let's start off by telling everybody, if you don't mind, what it is that you're doing now and why. Oh, well, I'm now um, doing the Disability Leadership Institute, uh, which is uh, an organisation I founded in 2016. Yeah. And it uh, provides uh, professional development training uh, programs and a supportive community for disability leaders uh, around Australia and the planet. Um, And so needed, I I would have said. So so needed. needed, Because there was a bloody gaping chasm, I imagine. A gaping chasm, and that's why I'm doing it. Um, it's it it just wasn't happening. You know, we um we had really nothing like that going on, and you know the assumption that disabled people don't do leadership. Is so it's bullshit. <laughs> it, it, it's complete bullshit, and it's you know a, a big part of that is um you know we're not a lobby group, we're not a systemic advocacy org. It's a background that I come from, so you know we could be doing that, but I think it's time that we had an organisation that provided that ongoing presence. Yep. So when people want some development or they want that supportive community, we're here. We don't have to be found. We don't have to wait for pilot project funding. We don't have to do all that stuff. Yeah, great. Um, and over time, that consistent presence means that we, we're getting into the narrative. So disability leadership is now a con, uh, an actual term that the government uses, uh, which they didn't before. Thank you very much. Right. And um, there's an increasing understanding that we can't just talk about disability as an employment issue. It's actually a leadership issue. And, you know, the change is slow, but it's happening. So, yeah. It's just uh, brilliant. Um, I have to say that the thing that has probably shocked me the most about disability um, is is we have an amazing woman in the group called uh, Lisa Cox, um, who's really, you know, on a mission to make a change happen. And she gave me the stat that 20% of the population identifies as disabled. Well, to me, I mean, that is so massive. It's like one in four people. And yet we don't see anyone, anything like that on television. We don't see them in dramas. We don't see them in factual things. We very rarely see them on the news. You know, it's, it's, I, I, I'm so shocked. So I'm absolutely delighted with what you're doing. And the it's, more disabled leaders true. we can have, the more it will normalize it all. And we won't start having to call them disabled well, leaders. We can call them no, leaders. That's it. And, and, you know, well, we just call ourselves leaders, of course. Yes. It, we are the single largest minority group on the planet, Jules. Unbelievable. The single largest minority group. So um, the UN or the World Health Organization, you know, they've, they've got connections. Um, put it at 15% of the global population. And we know that that's actually a low figure because many countries don't keep statistics in the same way that Western countries do. So in Western countries, the figure's usually 20, 25% of the population. Gosh, 25%? On, yep. Yep, absolutely. A lot of the Americans talk in terms of 25%. Um, in Australia, we're officially sitting at about 19%, 18 point something. Yeah. Um, and... 
you know, so we rounded up to 20 because we know that there are people who get missed. Um, but it is, it's a, it's a big chunk of the population. And, you know, where are we in the parliaments? We've actually got four people in Australian parliaments, all of them, all parliaments, yeah. so the state and territory parliaments as well as the federal and ones. Local. We've got four. Um, local government's a bit different. We've got a few more people right. in local government. Um, still not very many but no. a few. Um, but four people. And uh, a colleague of mine who who's no longer with us, alas, but um, a few years back she counted it up for me and she said across all of the parliaments of Australia we've got something like 900-odd <gasps> members of parliament. no. Oh, Something I'm getting like goosebumps. That. Four and, out and of 900. Four, four out of 900. Um, and so it's it's clear that we've got a long way to go. Um, <laughs> and then, the way, and then know, if you happen to be a woman and disabled and maybe, and maybe eth- a different ethnicity, you, you know, well, you're down to it. like no – no leadership at all in terms That's of anything. It, you, you know, can once you get intersectional, with. and in fact, of those four members of parliament, yep. one is a woman. Wow. One is a woman. Um, so it it's actually pretty dire. And it isn't just about leadership positions, it's also about being respected in your community, yes. about being, as you say, being seen on the telly as a spokesperson. Um, I have a particular passion I've had for well over a decade of wanting to see more marine biologists who are disabled people. I don't know why. why. <laughs> um, I have no idea. It was it's just a thing. But um, <laughs> you know, it's you know, when, when there's someone talking about what's happening to the Barrier Reef, why isn't it a disabled person who's the expert? Yes. You know, and as you were saying, it's not about the disability. It's actually about the fact that we're across all fields. Yes. Um, you know, and, and the members of the Disability Leadership Institute um, are, are across all fields. Of course. You know, some of them are focused on disability-specific work um, because there's an awful lot of that still to be done. But many, many, many of them are not. Many of them are experts in all manner of fields um, and they're senior people in government or in corporate or, um, you know, running their own businesses, you know, hello, yeah, yeah. Um, or, or whatever they're doing um, across all sorts of fields, you know, that, that they've got expertise in. So it, it's there's a lot of mythology there around is. disability there. and what it is and how disabled people live and what we do. And how um, disabled disabled do. people are as well. That, that because, as well. Because yeah, there's lots and lots right. of ability there. It's often just one thing oh, it's that huge, you know, people can't, it's can't huge. walk or they can't see or they can't hear, but they've got all their other senses and a very well, competent brain. <laughs> you know, and if you think about that there's 5 million of us or so in Australia, um, about 10% of that 5 million might be getting NDIS support. Right. Um, so they might wow. be getting support. Wow, only 10%. Specific support. It's only 10% who get NDIS. Um, and, you know, so the other 90% are out there doing their thing. Great. You know, now, hello. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just really, and even of that 10%, I mean, I'm one of that 10%, um, it, it doesn't mean that you're actually stuck at home in a group house or a small institution requiring 24/7 support. No. You know, it, it's not it's not that's not what the lives of disabled people are. So there are a very very small percentage might be in that position and it yeah. is a very very small percentage. Wow. Mm. Oh mm. my god, I'm loving this. We just it, it's so clear that these myths just need to be busted wide open. Totally. That totally. it's such a small minority. Uh, and 25% across the globe has really kind of blown my tiny mind as well. Yeah. Okay, Christina. So, um and 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 I'll have to tell you a little anecdote actually just before we launch into your story. Um about um more I think it's uh 
Morgan and Banks. It's anyhow, it's one of the big recruitment companies. Uh, Michael Page, it is, and the CEO had an accident apparently six or seven years ago, and a bit like Michael Shoemaker, so he was skiing and he had an accident and he's ended up in a wheelchair. I think as a quadriplegic, um, but it is still the CEO of Michael Page globally. And apparently, when he, I, I was talking to the HR woman, and she said that he had said to her that in the previous 37 years of his career prior to the accident, he realised he had never, ever interviewed anyone in a wheelchair. Isn't that shocking? So he's it's he is so internally gosh. there going, hang on a minute, we need to make some changes. And I'm just so inspired by that story thinking, I bet, I bet that's true of most recruit, recruiters, you know, that, that, that oh, they have such it a is. tiny percentage so, it, is. it really you know. is, and it not just uh, for for um, Im, you know uh, employment positions, yeah. but also for things like board, um, you yeah. know, executive um, and governance governance recruitment. There's a really um, interesting. Uh, I'm going to put it out there. I'm I'm a, I'm a bit blunt on the language. Yeah, great, tools. go for um, it. <laughs> yeah, I, I have trouble with the word unconscious bias or the term unconscious bias because it implies that it's um it's a gentle thing. But you know, I prefer the word prejudice um, because really <laughs> it's. Um, it, it, it is that that's what it is. And, it is. And you know, what we do have is a particular prejudice towards a particular kind of person who does leadership. Um, yes. usually a white bloke, you know, we know that. It's usually yes, white blokes do. who do this stuff. Um but the assumption that you need to be able to operate a certain way. Um, that you are able to flog yourself for 100 hours a week, which, of course, nobody should be doing. No. Um, that you are coming through a particular education pathway, that you come through particular business networks, what we call merit in the in the trade. Um, <laughs> you know, all of those things that stack up to mean that it actually favours the white blokes yes. who go to certain schools. And here um, I am trying to make a change for women. And actually, it. so we, I want 50% women, but we actually need to have... 10% or 20% of boards. So there should be at least, yeah. it should be governmentally, governmentally, if that's a word, mandated that we should have a, a, every board needs a disabled person on it. Otherwise, well, it's it not should, reflecting society either. Actually, no, because your average board's about nine or 10 people. Right. So that means two. Yes. <laughs> but at least one. I mean, in the same way that we're going, you know, it's great that we've got 30% of women and then we actually examine it um, in the ASX 200 and mm. those uh, that 38 of those 60 women are in, on a board on their own and yes. also that there are a lot of the same women going around and on multiple boards. Um, you know, we need to get this change happening for disability as well. Well, we really do. And of course, you know, 20% of the women who are appointed should be disabled women. Yes. You know, 20% of the old white blokes should be disabled people. Um, it really does need to happen in that way. We're just not very good at diversity in, in some of this regard. No, but it's ho hopefully, the, the networks, the old networks that, you know, it's the recruitment's often through this. And I, I heard something once, um, you know, a couple of years back around the, you know, we've got those 200 ASX boards. Yeah. Um, the ASX 200 boards, but of those 200 boards, there's only a, a pool of about a thousand people who are actually on the, all the boards, the board members. You know, so it's not even two, 200 boards by say an average of 10. No, um, it's it's a much smaller cohort of folks. So it really is about busting into some very yep. very um, closed rooms. Yes. And, and well, hopefully, post pandemic, our eyes have all been opened a little bit more. And it's mm. going to happen. Now, the other thing I didn't ask you was what happened specifically 
that made you decide to set up the Disability Leaders Institute? Did, was there a yeah. light bulb moment, for want of a better way of doing it? But what was it that made you go, you know what, I've got to set this up because no one else is going to? Yeah, there was actually a light bulb moment and it actually happened, Jules, believe it or not, this is a true story. <laughs> yeah. 3 a.m. on a Sunday. Oh, of course it did when you so woke, woke up in the up middle of the night. One of those, one of those 3 a.m. moments <laughs> on a Sunday morning. <laughs> and uh, I thought, you know, we need some leadership stuff. Yeah. And the reason I thought that at the time, um, I come from a background in the community sector and in change-making, social change. Yeah. And one of the things that um, I was, you know, my previous job was actually running what's called a disability advocacy organisation. So these are government-funded agencies. They're usually tiny and there's about 70 or 80 of them around the country. They're the people who are supporting NDIS participants to go to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. They're the people who go in and and, um, support people in in institutional care to be able to be heard and to make change. Um, They're the people who campaigned alongside the disability um, rights movement for a Royal Commission because they're the people who see firsthand what's going on in the lives of disabled people. Not very many people in the disability advocacy sector are in fact disabled people. Most of them are not. Um, Is that so, weird? Um, well, yeah. It, it kind um, of, to me, that kind of, yeah. you know, I, I, you know, if we're talking <laughs> about uh, boards and things, I would expect that the whole thing would be flipped and it would be 90% disabled no, people and 10% and able-bodied. The representative community, so the disability rights movement is, of course, disabled people. It has to be yes. um, in the main. It must be. Otherwise, you don't qualify as a representative organisation. But the advocacy sector is is kind of comes from a long history of the families that supported people. So the there's carers. a lot of family involvement yeah. um, and allies and, and people of that sort. So, you know, it, it does that. So there does need to be some change there. Um, peculiarly, the organisation that I was running became what's called a disabled people's organisation because not just me, but 80% of our staff and then subsequently the board made a decision that more than half of them should also be disabled people. So we made the shift across. Right. Um, and it was a political decision to do and very unusual in the disability advocacy sector for that to be the case. Um, right. But we were working all day, every day, you know, I'm, I'm being the CEO and I've got a team of advocates doing work and I've got a team of policy people, you know, writing submissions about what we're seeing on the front line, um, you know, the lives of people and how, how difficult people's lives are. This was before the NDIS, so we were part of the NDIS build yes, process. Yes, okay. Um, I, you know, I was around for a, a lot of that. Um, and so we're seeing a lot of violence. We're seeing a lot of abuse. We're seeing a lot of marginalisation. We're often in places like sheltered workshops or segregated environments like education and transport and housing. Yeah. And we had a Four Corners episode. Right. We had a Four Corners episode that was actually looking at the appalling levels of violence that disabled people are living with. It is endemic. What what do you mean? But can I just ask you to explain Mm. that a little bit more? Where are they seeing the violence? Well, mm, um, it's it's tough stuff. You know, I used to have a job talking about violence. It was really oh my goodness, Christina. Really appalling. Again, Um, I don't. Why? How do I not know this? (laughs) Well, it's it's, so. Where's the violence coming from? It's it's coming from able-bodied people towards disabled people. It it can be. um, You know, over. Uh, you know, what we know, and the figures are pretty stark here, so just just hold your horses, Jules. Um, okay. <laughs> about 90% of women with a cognitive disability will be sexually assaulted in their lifetime. Sorry? Most of them, 
most of them more than once, okay? So we're talking about predatory behaviour against some of the most vulnerable, uh, vulnerable women in our communities. So that's, and I'm saying women in a very binary 90%. way. There, 90%. 90% of women with cognitive disability. Uh. In all of those institutional environments, segregated environments, um, you know, group houses are part of that. Yeah. There is often a level of violence between people. Because they, they're shoved in together. They don't want to be living with each other. They often don't get a choice. So they don't actually kind of psychologically assess who would be good to live with other people. They oh, just they do a in. bit of that. But, you know, can you imagine if you were psychologically assessed to live with your family? Yeah. Would yeah. you actually still be allowed to live with them? You know? Um, yeah, But right. there's such a shortage of, of housing, of suitable housing, of housing with support staff that the levels of violence are quite high. People are shoved into places simply because there's somewhere available. Right. So there's violence in that space. Then there's also the people occasionally, and it's a very sad thing to say, but it's true and it still happens, we get support workers who actually move into that sector. Because they're predators. Because they're predators and so they prey Stop. on people. Um, so we get not just sexual oh, violence is... but we might also get physical abuse and, you know, something akin to torture. We get people with broken limbs or, you know, they get injured in ways that are obviously, you but know, no in the same cares. way that we see in aged care. It yeah. is exactly the same sort of stuff. And often they are. That's the other thing, isn't it? That you get, yeah. you have a disability, and you might be twenty six, and you're suddenly put into aged care because that's the only thing, the only place they can put you. Well, we we hopefully the NDIs is supposed to stop that, but alas, it is still happening. We also know that disabled women living out in the community, so women like me, yeah, for example. Although I I am very um, lucky Special. not to have been in this position, um, but uh, we are several times more likely to be um, on the receiving end of domestic violence than the broader population of women. So we experience uh, um, domestic violence at, at two to four times the levels of other women in the community. And and so there's a hell of a lot of violence going on. Um, you know, we also get discrimination and vilification just out there in the wider world. Yes. You know, people say horrible stuff to you in the supermarket or, or you know, I was reading in the paper this morning um, because I read the paper over breakfast every day, but, um, you know, there was a guy that was refused uh, a ride in a taxi with his guide dog. You know, now that's not violence, but it's discrimination. So the people are often on the receiving end of this appalling um yeah, discrimination. You know, discrimination and or vilification. You know, when when there's really unpleasant, hurtful language, and unfortunately we've seen some of that during the current election campaign, you know, language that is just really demeaning or stigmatising around disability, um, and it allows people to come in and say things. You know, I've been reading things uh, in the paper and I've been hearing people talking on talkback radio saying, yeah, but being disabled is awful. It is worse than other people, you know. I mean, excuse me. Yeah. So that's the environment that I was working in and I was running a team of advocates um, doing that work, you know, getting in there and assisting individual people to be heard and to speak. Because that's what advocates so do. Important. So important. They don't speak for, they speak on, you know, they yes. support people to be heard, um, including people who don't use talking or people who have significant communication barriers. And my team said to me one day, why does nobody ever believe us when we tell them what's going on? 
why won't they believe us? You know, government won't believe us, the community doesn't believe us, the media doesn't believe it's as bad as it is. You know, and we had this Four Corners episode, which even the reporter who did the Four Corners episode actually wrote an article later to say, I never believed the advocates when they told me these stories until I went in and started and putting together myself. this episode and saw it and realised that actually no one's making it out to be worse than it is. They're actually dressing it up to be palatable. Oh, my you know? God, So Christina. that's what we were living with and we still are. Yeah. We still are. It's why there's a Royal Commission underway. And uh, and I said to my team, you know, the reason that they won't listen to us is because we are not equal. We're not we perceived not as equal. equal. You are equal. People. You're just not perceived as equal. We've got to We're change that perception. We're not treated equally. Our voice is not an equal voice. We are not in the rooms of decision-making and power. We are not treated credibly. We are often forgotten when policy is being developed. And... That is about getting equal. Now, the only way to get equal, we've learned this, you know, I've actually had a background, I've grown up in the women's movement. Um, The way to get equal is to be in the room and to to have power. That's right. To be there making the decisions. It's to be the decision makers, you know. We're still working on it for for women, for getting gender equality going. Um, We actually need the same kind of push going in the disability space. And if I could say, and of course this is a broad sweeping statement, but if we had more women in leadership positions, I would like to think that they would be thinking and bringing up their disabled sisters with them. A well, little bit more yes. than than yeah. um, the blokes who probably they're just so left brain. They're just thinking in terms of numbers and you know no emotion. Well, they do, and I think I think you do have a point there. But we also need to remember that even the women's movement um, still isn't very good at including intersectional sisters. No, you know, no. so we're not very good in the women's movement at including our indigenous sisters, uh, women from diverse cultural backgrounds. You know, we 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 still move fundamentally people still move within their own networks in their own comfort zones um and it's quite unusual and one of the things i value enormously about not just the disability community but also about the community sector that i've worked in is that it is incredibly diverse and, yes, because uh, because it's not a certain well, type of person that's no, made that's disabled. No, that's exactly right. And, and, and then there's accidents as well that make people disabled. You know, it doesn't have to be from things. birth. It's it's all of that. And yeah. uh, and so working in the community sector, and you know, I wasn't always in disability specific positions. I worked in other organisations as well in the broader community sector. But you never know who's coming through the door on a given day, and you literally are dealing with people for who they are right in front of you. And it is so fantastic. It is one of the richest things. And I am so pleased, you know, if I went under a truck tomorrow, I can honestly say that that particular richness in my life has been just a joy, you know, having that incredible diversity of people from all manner of backgrounds. And, you know, I don't always get it right. Um, But, you know, I've I've worked along... You mean you're human? (laughs) Indeed. But I've also come from a, you know, a privileged white background. So, you know, I've had to learn about being um, alongside um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. I've had to learn how to um, work with people who speak different languages. I've had to learn how to work with people who don't actually use talking um, or people who operate at a different speed, you know, people whose brains work differently. And, And so all of those sorts of things, you know, people from different socioeconomic spaces, people from different types of education and backgrounds, you know, all of these different sorts of people. So the the incredible richness that diversity brings us um, 
we're just not doing well at this stuff. And I'd like to think that um, as women that we might do better at it, but I think we still need to be really focused on making it happen. We're still yes. not. We have to build the awareness as well. We do. We, we do. And it's very easy to forget about someone when they're not in the room. Well, that's right. If you can't see it, you can't be it. Is is that's it. a great, a great, great saying that that yes. um, you know I'm really espousing. Now to go back to your three a.m. moment, though. Yes. Had you left working for the advocacy by that stage? So were you kind of I don't know what I'm going to do next, or you no. literally had that moment and I'm going I'm leaving my job. I'm going to go and do something. Well, no, I, I had Different. that moment um, and had no intention of leaving my job. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> um, because, you know, Overachievers Anonymous and all that. Um, and <laughs> I, I started talking to some of my um, trusted friends and colleagues in the disability rights community and said, okay, uh, I'm having some thoughts about leadership stuff. You know, we need to do something. You know, something needs to happen. Yeah. We worked out that we'd had maybe about half a dozen specific programs over about 20 years. So, right. you know, there'd been a few bits and pieces and that had been it. That was it. There was nothing. Wow. Um, and so I thought, right, oh, well, okay, I thought I'll do something then. Um, and so I did the classic, um, what do we call it, um, you know, lean startup where you literally you get you get your business name, oh, you get yes. your domain name. <laughs> business name, domain name and whoop, you're there. Yes, build a website, um, that's it. That's it, you know, and, and someone actually, um, you know, I put together an advisory group and I think it's important to mention that and all of that happened within the space of about uh, six weeks. Wow. Uh, because, you know, I've never been accused of not uh, achieving things. <laughs> no flies and, on uh, you. <laughs> yep, and, um, and I still was holding down my other job. So I, I did actually take my long service leave at this point. I was experiencing, but I didn't yet know it, um, Jules, and I think right. that's probably a very common experience. I was actually experiencing quite severe burnout. Um, right. Not uncommon for people in the activism space on the front line, but no. also not uncommon for women um, in leadership in positions leadership roles. either. No. And I really did need a break. So I took my long service leave and I spent that time tinkering about and getting the Disability Leadership Institute up and running. And my advisory group met a few times. It gave me some really wonderful um, background advice on all manner of things, including going out to market and surveying, you know, potential members of the institute, um, having yeah. a look at how we might make the money, what sort of structures, all of those sorts of things. And one of the things that happened that I was really, really lucky to, to, to find was somebody who actually did me a website for nothing, you know. Wow. Now, I, I genuinely um, know that that was a, a, a beautiful thing to happen and I would have struggled without it, um, you know, and I'm still looking after it myself at the back end. But, um, you know, one day I'll I'm hand very glad to that the else. universe delivered then. It did um, deliver. It did now, deliver. Mm. Now, Christine, Christina, as much as I could keep nattering away forever, we probably should try and yes. <laughs> do some of the normal stuff. That's right. Um, so I want you to take me back to when you were a little girl and tell me where you grew up, whether you had brothers and sisters, what your parents did, what kind of a life did you have as a little girl? Um, I had a very, uh, a very. I've got three sisters. There's four of us. Wow. And, uh, yeah, um, <laughs> that's right. It's it's one of those. And uh, and no, I'm not the oldest either, which is you know uh, very thankful for. But where, um, where were you born in the pecking order? I was. Uh, I'm second. I'm second. Okay. Um, and so there's the biggies and the littlies. Yeah. Um, 
I, I was very privileged to grow up in the Ryan family um, as, you know, an active feminist. So I've been an active feminist since I was the age of eight. Um, Why? Hang on, I don't know anything. Yeah. What do you mean the, the Ryan um, family? I'm, I'm Should about, I know your family? I'm about to explain, Jules. Okay, just I'll be calm quiet. down here. Yeah, just, just, <laughs> just wait for the story. Now, the... Um, my mother joined the women's movement when I was eight, so that's when she joined the women's electoral lobby, uh, and that was the year that it was established um, right. when it first started doing all of that election campaigning that uh, was when Gough Whitlam was getting up. Yes, I'm that old. And, uh, <laughs> and so I was part of a family doing that, but my aunts, my two aunts, my father's sisters, my two aunts were very active in the women's movement at that time, and my grandmother was on the front line. She is... Um, one of the people who's credited with getting a sequel pay for women. Oh, and my so, goodness, Christina. Yeah, that's right. So, um, you know. You didn't have a chance really, did you? Well, I had plenty of chance. Uh, <laughs> I, I could have decided that that was not what I wanted to do. I come from a long line of activists, a long line of um, right. left-wing activists. You know, my How family, wonderful. My, my aunt is actually a professor of history. Um, she's been putting together the massacre map. Um, but she has traced our family back six generations, back to Eureka and back to union activism, back six generations at least. <laughs> so, so it's in your blood. That's, oh, that's what I meant are. when I said you didn't have a chance. No, that's <laughs> I mean, you we were are. always going to be an activist. So activism is the family trade, if you want to have a right. look at it that way. But, but um, since the early 70s, um, feminism has been what we do in the Ryan Focused family. On. And right. uh, and so even though we've got a very um, left-wing bent and, you know, everyone's a member of the union in my family, it's just what you do, um, we also have a, a lot of feminist activism. And my sisters aren't, you know, quite as frontline about it as I am, but they certainly do it. Um, yeah. You know, my, my next sister down became one of the first uh, qualified welders, uh, qualified female welders and won, um, you know, all sorts of prizes for, for women moving into oh, non-traditional amazing. trades back in the well, if we go back to that, that you can't be it if you can't see it, you well, could definitely see it around you, all couldn't of that. you? But so, did you did you did you did you enjoy school? I mean, was it something that you you know enjoyed as part learning all that sort of thing, or was it very? I mean, I don't actually know what your disability is. Was it very difficult yeah, for you? Well, I you know I wasn't disabled at this point, and you know I, I won't I won't go into details about my disability. It's not really relevant, particularly, but. You know, I I grew up in Canberra and growing up in Canberra means that you get right. access to a Canberra-based education and it is one of the best public education systems in the country. Right. And what that means is that I've got a really good general education um, but I've also come from a family of highly articulate people. So and you were getting the information at home as well. So, you know, I, I grew up analysing what the system was doing. I grew up having a look at what structures were and how they were operating for people. I grew up understanding that they, that not everybody had the same privilege. And what that, that really enabled me to do was move into the world knowing that you can actually change things. Yeah, you don't great. have to Isn't accept a, it the way it is. You can actually um, make a difference if you choose to do so because my family was already doing that. Right. You know, I would go and stay with my grandmother every school holidays while she was actively campaigning for equal pay, while she was putting together the wage cases and going to the Industrial Commission, which is How what it was back then. And what that means is I actually learnt it, you know, at, on, from on the birth street. almost. <laughs> no, I learnt it at the barricades. Um, I didn't go to university and learn it. I learnt it, you know, um, I did the apprenticeship, as I say. And so, you know, I've been really um, privileged to have that sense of 
you know, knowing that you don't have to accept things the way they are. Now that doesn't and that mean is that a privilege. It's a it gift. Is a it privilege. totally is. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's only about fifteen percent of the population who are politically aware and active. You know, so there's only a really small proportion of people yeah. who actually do move into that space. Um, and that's that is a privilege. You know, it it opens the world up for understanding that you can make a difference. Okay, so yeah. to to go back to your life, you went to school. What happened when you finished school? How did you go through to year twelve? I did, um, absolutely. And, and uh, then what did you decide to do when and you finished I, school? I I um I went off in those days. What, what did we do in those days in Canberra? There was only one option. You went and joined the public service. So I did that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Makes sense. So what was the first job? I, I, I can't, I'm struggling to remember, but I, I did end up um, very in very short order becoming a staffer for a federal government minister when I was um, 19, 20. I did that. Oh, wow. Very young. And, um, and in fact, I became, uh, I was on the staff of Susan Ryan, the fabulous Susan Ryan, who is no relation as we are. I was going to say, is that a relation? No. No, no a sixth of the population of Ireland. Apparently, I met the Irish ambassador while I was working there and he, he told me <laughs> that. Um, so, you know, your chances of being a Ryan are pretty high. Um, and so Susan, um, you know, was terrific. And it was it was during the period that she introduced the Sex Discrimination Bill to Parliament. Um, we ratified CEDAW. Wow. You know, all of those marvellous things that were happening. Um, I got to know the women on Greenham Common were being very active, so we had a delegation from them that came down and spoke to her. Um, you know, all sorts of amazing things that were going on at the time um, wow. around women and women's uh, rights. And, you know, back then I was a young woman who who had a lot to do in the world and, you know, was, was getting on with things. And I, I had always wanted to go into the theatre and I, right. I'd always wanted to um, to to do the theatre, and so I, you know, I did singing and dancing and did all this sort of stuff. Snap! I was um, very similar. I wanted yeah. to, and my mum said, "Make it a hobby. You can't do it as a career." Oh no, no! My family <laughs> were very supportive, and my grandmother, my fabulous grandmother, used to take me to the theatre. So I grew up going to the Sydney Theatre Company, um, Belvoir Street, Nimrod Theatre, all of those yeah, sorts of right. things on a regular basis, um, and. You know, I saw every single production of the Sydney Dance Company up until a certain point um, wow. you know, when, when uh, you know, my life moved on. So I really wanted to move into that space. So I've always been someone who's um, able to get up in front of people and talk. Not scared of a stage or a microphone. No, no. <laughs> I, I only discovered a couple of years ago that apparently that's quite rare. Most people are yes. terrified. So um, that's been a good thing. Anyway. It's been a great thing. But I, I you know, my life moved on. I, I ended up moving to Melbourne with my partner in the mid-80s and, um, you know. For and a job? Did you come down here for, for no, were you no, still my, in my the government sector? My partner did. My, no, no, okay. I, I'd left the government sector. My, my partner um, moved down to Melbourne um, because he was a touring musician and uh, he, he had prospects in Melbourne. So that's where he went. And I thought, oh. Wow. I thought, bugger it, I'll go too. So off I went. Um and uh, we did stuff. We actually had a really difficult time. We had a lot of poverty in Melbourne. Um, right. And we really uh, we got very, very good at managing on not very much money at all, um, which, was, yes. which was a really it's, good it's skill. It's a skill that I have as well, but I'd rather not have it. I'd rather have had lots of money, but anyway. Oh, no. <laughs> it, it, it actually means that we now know just how much comfort and security we really do have. True, um, very true. And we we actually are quite good at, at knowing 
where where waste exists. <laughs> so, you right. Know, you, so, you can't even so, get all of that. Yeah. So how long were you in this situation in Melbourne for? We lived down there for six or seven years and that was when I became disabled and we moved back to Canberra to be around um, support and family. And so... Um, You know, I've been back in Canberra for 30 years and I haven't worked for all of that. I had to have years out, um, as many disabled people um, do, particularly disabled women. So time out of the the workforce, just managing, just coping um, and, you know, doing all of the medical stuff that you have to do. And getting back into the workforce was when I finally um, started using my activism skills, you know. Great. Which, of course, I have absolutely not a single qualification in. You can't learn well, this other, stuff at Well, I guess, yeah, but I guess for you, you had a first-hand experience then of going from able-bodied to disabled to see the discrimination and prejudice firsthand well, and see that there was that. a need for activism. There was a lot of that and I was very, very lucky to hook up with a bunch of Canberra women um, who were the local women with disabilities group, just a small group of women, about half a okay. dozen of us. And we were also kind of one of the core groups of Women with Disabilities Australia, which was based here in Canberra at the time. Um, It's now got its head office in Tasmania, but it used to be based in Canberra. And so getting in with those women back in the late 90s really changed my life. You know, the Disability Sisterhood are a marvellous group of women, you know, feminists with disability and you know, they don't take any shit. They've got a separate organisation because they were sick of putting up with the men in the men's organisations globally, so they formed their own women's organisation. Feisty women already. Oh, we incredibly. Love that. Um, you know, real take-no-prisoners <laughs> sort of stuff. And it's when we started to understand the common experience of being disabled women, and there's still a lot of that understanding coming through. But one of the real privileges of that space, um, not just of working with those women for the last you know, 25 years, um, and many of them have become very, very dear friends, but also recognising that we couldn't do it alone. And so right from back then, we developed a real imperative to develop other women to come after us. It had to be done. It had to be done. We couldn't do it all. And now, of course, WIDA, Women with Disabilities Australia, WIDA, has thousands of women all over the country who are its members. Oh, fantastic. And I don't have to do much of anything. In fact, I don't do much of anything for WIDA anymore except be a friend of WIDA, um, you know, one of the old guard, if you want to call us that. Um, you know, we've mentored, we've trained others up, we've put other women into into positions, given them opportunities and then backed them and oh, supported them. We've done all of those things. And we've done it because we know um, that, you know, we can't do it all ourselves, but particularly because we're disabled women. Um, And one of the things that we're becoming very good at in the disability community is understanding how to do leadership without it being that flog yourself 100 hours a week type of stuff. It's, It's not sensible. It's not sustainable. No. Nobody can be doing it. No, no. I've I've now interviewed about 200 women for this series and I reckon at least a third of them, if not more, have literally burnt out to the mm. extent that they've had to stop their jobs yes. or spend a year in bed or yes. whatever it might be, but just awful. And, and 
patting themselves on the back up until the moment when their, you know, body let them down, saying, aren't I being great? Doesn't matter. I don't need sleep. I can travel 50 weeks a year. And No, no, um, you can't. You know, it's awful what people put themselves through. You actually can't. And it's it's dangerous. Um, we need to change it. And it's through changing that understanding of work and what work looks like. And I think disabled people, but particularly disabled women, will be the lead here for women generally. But then through that, once women are getting better at it, we've already seen that with the early models of flexible work. You know, it's actually teaching men that they don't have to be flogging themselves. So we're getting there. Well, that's right. You know, I keep talking in the binary sense and I do mean, uh, you know, broader um, continuum of of genders. So, you know, I did burn out. I actually crashed and burned. It nearly killed me. Um, I had to stop my my job at the Disability Advocacy Organisation quite suddenly. Um, when my doctor oh. said to me, you're going to die and you're going to die pretty soon. Burnout is a oh serious thing. Burnout is not just being tired. Burnout is not just being over it. It's your adrenal system from what Burnout what is your I entire hear. body starting to feed on itself and collapse because it cannot function any longer. We can't do that in the disability community. We're already operating at 110% just to get out of the door in the morning or just to right. front up and do this sort of thing. You know, I've already, yeah. it's already taken poof, just about, you know, a hell of a lot All of the energy, energy I've got for the day. And so we often have conversations in the disability, in the DLI members community, the Disability Leadership Institute members community, where we have member groups. And we often yep. have these conversations about what does disability leadership look like? How do we do this? What does it mean? How do we move in those ablest spaces, those mainstream spaces where we're expected to operate as we can't? What do we do? How do we do this stuff? And we're sort of shifting it as we go. And the recognition that we actually work flexibly, we work very flexibly. You know, I actually have a phone message now, um, which I didn't have. It took me a couple of years, but I now embrace the fact. Um, I have a nap every afternoon. This is how I survive. brilliant. I love that. It took me five years to really get to a point where I was recovering from the burnout. Five Five years. years. Five years. It was quite severe. It did nearly kill me. So five years. And I had no choice. Meditation every day, absolutely non-negotiable. Nap every afternoon, non-negotiable. You know, make sure. And it's all based, and we do this a lot in the disability community, routine. This is how we actually sustain it. Routine, make sure you eat, sleep, take your drugs, do all the right stuff at the right time get your exercise in, there's things you can't just allow not to happen. You've got to keep it going because it's when those things slip that the wheels start to come off. Now, you might have a week where there's something you do that's big but you need to sort of plan for the consequences. Now, this is, you know, this is what we aren't doing at the moment. You think of right now and, you know, getting into a bit of time um, stamping going on here for you, Jules, which I'm sorry That's about right. doing, just bugging you up No, there. no, I'm but, loving it. Um, you know, right now there's an election campaign underway um, and it's going for about five or six weeks, you know, which is an outrageously lengthy period. So there's a whole bunch of the people inside that bubble who are probably working the most appalling hours. Running around that hamster wheel just doing that. But I, do you think... What are they going to do to stop... After the election campaign, and the answer is they aren't. No, they're going to keep going. Actually, somebody's going to win government and they're actually going to increase the pace. How the hell do we want people in that state running our country? How is that a good thing? How is that healthy? So we need to have these conversations about what does flexible really look like? And I've got this message on my phone saying, if you're ringing me between this hour and this hour, 
um, don't bother. You know, I mean, I'm quite polite Text about me it. Text because it's, I'll look at it after. I say I'm off air. I'm not. I'm not available during these hours. Um, so I get people Fantastic. madly scrambling to ring me before the cutoff time. No, but know? but Christina, I think you've got a really good point there because we all feel like if we don't put in those hours, then the wheels will fall off the bus. You know that, or, or that you know people aren't going to be able to. I, I have to do this because otherwise I'm holding other people up from their job. And then something happens where you do have to stop, whatever it might be, baby, illness, whatever it might be. And suddenly you realise that actually it doesn't make that much difference. And no. if you want to take a nap for two hours every day, that really won't affect anything with any. Like it, it just people just go, okay, I'm not calling her between those hours. That's it. And yet you, we beat ourselves up about. I mean, you know, I'll take a day. Or I'm I am shocking for lifestyle being important, but I'll take time off because someone's cancelled a couple of meetings, and I don't go, all right, I'm going to use this time to you know do such and such. I go, great, got time off. That's it. So I think yeah. it's super. important. Important. It's huge. And, and, and I think, you know, I mean, great advice. I probably work the same number of hours, but I spread them over more yeah. time. And, and so I'm sure you probably work more effectively. I do, actually. Because you have had that. That's right. You know, I mean, I can get up. I'm an early morning person. If I work between five and seven in the morning, mm. I could probably get the equivalent of what I'd get done between nine and two in the afternoon. Absolutely. Done, and if I'm tra- just because of, you know. If I'm trying to work at three o'clock in the afternoon, my brain starts to stop. You know, I need yeah, to, I need yeah. to, I need to. Uh, Smoke starts coming point. out the ears. But so I do a little bit of, you know, I have a couple of hours that I work before dinner. I work then and I do, you know, there's one or two things I might do on a Saturday morning. I might, you know, and okay, I'm not working seven days a week and I am reclaiming my weekends. I really am, I promise. Um, (laughs) You know, I might do stuff that is is offline stuff like a bit of work at the back end of the website or, you know, some of those bits and pieces. And one of the other things we do more now, of course, is work globally. Yes. And we particularly do this in the disability community, but it's given us the opportunity to do things like speak at conferences or talk to colleagues yeah. in other countries. And we're often doing that at ridiculous times. <laughs> um, so we can't just be working extra hours to cover that. We need to think about how do we how do we sort of manoeuvre our hours so that we're still actually not working more than a certain number or that we're actually getting the downtime that we need. Yeah. You know, you know. I'm a big believer in, in um, results. Based. So yes. I don't really care what hours I work, other than I don't want to work long hours. <laughs> mm. But as long as you get the job done, you know, then it it, it should be enough. Now uh, we're going to run out of time, and I want to hear a little bit more about. So we and, and I'll finish the life story in a minute, but just in case I've missed anything. So you went, you had this burnout, um, had to leave your job, obviously mm. five years. I'm that's still so. Um, what did you do after you came back into the workforce? Did you just dip your well, toe in? No, I didn't. Um, when I <laughs> you jumped in because both I feet. established the Disability Leadership Institute, and I was still During working. That I was period. still working in my other job, and right. so what I actually did was I jumped off the cliff earlier than I had anticipated. Right. And I, I also did a Westpac fellowship during that time because you know. Um, <laughs> overachieving is just, you know, one of those things. It's a thing. Oh, I can tell that. And um, <laughs> I'm now a recovering perfectionist, Jules, and it's a good place to be. Um, but, you know, I enjoyed my work, my fellowship because what it actually showed me was that if I was doing something that really invigorated my mind, um, I was able to actually do it. So it, it, it was the beginnings of me coming to understand that I wasn't able to sustain what I was doing. Um, the work on the front line, the work at the front line, um, you know, dealing with violence all day, every day, 
it took its toll. Um, it is really harsh work. And I remember once being on a radio panel, we were talking about sport, actually. I, I used to be on the sport panel periodically on the ABC locally. And uh, right. I, used to, I don't envy you that at all. Well, I know. <laughs> I used to run Women's Sport Australia for a period of time. So I, I do. I am a bit of a sport nut. Oh, my um, God, so, Christina. You know, in, just another little back in the early accolade days, you know, that you back, forgot to mention. It was about 20 years ago. And, um, and so... I'd be on the sport panel and this this person actually rang in and said, I can't believe you're all making such a joke about all of this stuff when so many horrible things are happening in the world. And I actually responded to it. I said, I'm going to take that one. I said, you know, I'm working in violence all day, every day. And it's okay to actually have a good time and to recognise that your life isn't that life. It's okay yes. to actually understand that you are working to address the violence while still being a human being. You cannot admire yourself in death and destruction and violence and abuse. Without any levity. Without any breaks at all. If you want to cause yourself serious mental illness, that's a good way of going about it. Yeah. And yeah. so it's actually really important that we stop periodically and celebrate the little victories that we stop periodically yep. and have a cake with the team, you know, that we stop periodically and laugh at something ridiculous that we've seen some bloke do. It's super important to it's laugh. It's hugely important. And and particularly I would have thought in, in, in a job where it is all that, where there is so much negativity and violence and whatever, the yes. opportunity to laugh should be encouraged surely it's huge. as much as you possibly can. It's huge. And, in fact, some of the best laughs I've had have been with the, the team you know, the teams that I've worked with, the groups that I've worked with when we've been doing some of the most appalling work, you know, addressing the most difficult things and yet we still have time to sit back and laugh at, at things. We have to crack a joke, you I must. would have thought, to break the tension. You must. It's yeah. It sounds really difficult but what we know is that, you know, you can damage yourself quite badly and it's something that... I think we're not very good at recognising how to address that stuff. You know, we're not we're not very good at acknowledging the, the appalling stuff when it sits there. We, we get uncomfortable around it. And part of leadership is recognising that it isn't always joy and bliss, you know. Um, sometimes yep. it's really unpleasant shit. But it's okay to actually know that and to turn and to see that, there's also this beautiful thing. And, in fact, Julia Baird's done this, you know, her book around um, luminescence. Now, I haven't read okay. it, but periodically she tweets beautiful things because uh, I'm a big Twitter fan. That's, Twitter's my primary platform. Well, we won't talk about Elon Musk I, having bought I don't care about then. Elon Musk. I don't <laughs> care about what Elon's doing. I really don't. Um, but one of the things that, that it, it shows us is that turning to look at beauty, turning to look at the fact that the world has this contrast. It has glory and beauty, just wonderful things alongside incredible death and destruction and pain. And that's yeah. humanity. That's humanity. And you need both sides. You can't live in one side or the other. You've got to have a bit of both. We're all I think. of it. We are all that of balance, it. Yeah. We are really yeah. all of it. Yeah. Oh, Christina, you are just so amazing. All right, now we're gonna, we've run out of time for a lot of questions, but at the very beginning before we came on, you said, I can't wait to talk about the juggle, the work and juggle <laughs> questions. So my question is, how are you, having now heard your experience of um, burnout and, and also what you've had to deal with, 
How do you juggle work and life? What sort of hours are you working now? Tell us about your week. Uh, I'm still I'm still learning. I'm still getting there. I'm still not as good at it as I need to be. I am absolutely rigid in my routine. So I, I, I do my exercises every morning when I'm physically capable of doing them, which is usually... I eat. What time are we talking uh, about? Just give me an idea oh, of what, what, whether you're an early bird. That's about six. Okay. About six, seven o'clock in the morning I'm doing that. Meditation yeah. follows. Uh, I must meditate. Yep. That is non-negotiable. 20 minutes. I do okay. um, Beatles style of meditation. So, you know, I, I learned from the same people as the Beatles learnt from, so I do that stuff. Uh. Um, okay. I then I learnt back in school. I was really lucky. A, a bunch of us learnt when we were in year twelve. That is amazing. Well, yeah, you know, cause... we were all hippies. So, but anyway, it was it stood me in very good stead. I, I have breakfast. I actually eat a proper breakfast. I'm an av- avocado toast kind of girl. Um, of course you are. Listen to <laughs> listen to AM on the radio um, on the ABC. Read the paper. So I do get my day set up, and then I work. And I I have lunch at a set time. I have my nap, I have dinner, you know, so I have these set sort of times. So so talk to me about it. So maybe you're getting into work, say, 9 till 12 and then you work from 2 till 5 or something? Is that? I, I work 9 till, usually 9 till 1.30. I have a break. Okay. I have a break for lunch um, at about 12 um, because I often have a member group at 12.30. So I'll have a, a break right. before Shove that. Shove in a sandwich kind um, of thing. And that yep. group will go to 1.30. So then I'll stop and have my nap. Okay. And then I get up at about 5 or 4, 4.35 and I work for a couple of hours before dinner. Yeah. And I might, so I might actually dinner. have a, um, I might actually have another group, a six to seven group. I've got one of those this evening. In fact, I've got um, the coaches that we have, uh, the Disability Leadership Institute now has a coaches group um, panel. Right. Um, and so the coaches are meeting today. It's our coaches community of practice. So, so I often have okay. a, a and group then, at six o'clock in the evening that goes for an hour. And then weekends, sacrosanct, or are they part of the routine? Well, so you weekends work? are also very routine based. It's actually t- my partner time. So that's when we, right. that's when we have Makes our partner, um, we do stuff. So we have lunch together on Saturday, uh, yep. often with my mother. Um, who's now quite elderly, um, but she'll join us for lunch on a Saturday if she's up for it. Um, we have dinner on Saturday night, so we do that. Yep. Um, we're foodies, so we might go out or, or you know, we last couple of years we've done a lot of eating in, of course. Um, and uh, <laughs> we we actually have Sunday as more of a quiet day. Um, so, nice. you know, we, we might do a little bit of pottering, a bit of house stuff, but, um, you know, we catch up with ourselves and, you know, all those things like my partner's a mad ironing. He he he's absolutely if he doesn't get his ironing, he Are you kidding me? No. You should rent him out. I, I'll um, have him over at my my children saw an iron the other day and went, What's what? that, Mum? We've never seen that before. No, well he um, he's got his work uniform, so they need ironing. And uh Right. And so he he does that and I can't He just keeps I going. I can't iron does anymore. He do the so sheets? If, he, if he doesn't get oh goodness me, no, nobody irons sheets. I'm, <laughs> We're not that far. I'm a feminist for heaven's sake. And uh <laughs> So, you know, it's 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 the clothes, it's the cotton stuff that needs ironing. But yeah. um yeah, if he doesn't get his hour at least of ironing on a Sunday afternoon, he gets a bit a bit antsy about things. So he needs his okay. ironing time. He sounds like the perfect um, and I, I, I am of course <laughs> having my nap at that stage, so he, he he irons while I'm napping. And so yeah, um weekends are often for recovery. I, I might do stuff. Last weekend I launched a colleague's book. Um so you know, we'll do wow. some of those sorts of things. Um 
it's, you know, very routine-based. You know, certain days for certain things. I've got my therapy. I've got to fit around. You know, there's all the medical appointments yeah. got to fit around. Um, NDIS review, there's a lot of NDIS bureaucracy you've got to fit around. I'm delighted, know. though, to hear your, your working week. It sounds good. It sounds like what, what most people should be doing. And yeah. I often think in the, the climate that we have and the life we have in Australia, why we're not more like Italy and Greece where they all have the nap oh, exactly. in well, the middle of the day because it makes sense. I was so the a kids are kid, at school. Um, in Queensland. My, we lived in um, Brisbane when I was – we moved down to Canberra when I was seven, but for that early part. And, of course, that's exactly yeah. what you do in the, in the warm climate since you have an afternoon nap. Do they? Yes. I didn't realise. I love it that it's when you go overseas and it's mandated and the kids all start school really early, so 7 in the yes. morning. Makes sense. It's nice and cool at that mm. time of the day. Have a big meal at lunchtime and then snooze till 5. And I, um, I think they go back to school for two hours and then it's everyone goes out for dinner at 9 or 10. I, I loved going to Madrid. I've only been there once, but goodness me, it made sense to me. <laughs> it does. It does. Uh, you know. Anyway, we can do. We can do it, I mean, one of the beautiful things about working for yourself is you can create can the hours create that. that suit you. Or if you're the boss, you can actually do it for your team. And and I was doing this stuff. I wasn't having an afternoon nap back in those days, but I was, you know, we would work around people's disabilities and and how we would operate. It made finding a team meeting time a bit challenging, but we we did it. Um, (laughs) Because half the people were afternoon people and half the morning. The early people and late people, often in the disability community, you've got people who aren't able to be anywhere until 10 or 11 because their support support takes time in the morning. So... One of the things that I also do now is I, I have um, specific times that I will have appointments in my diary. So I don't actually muck around with that too much, like there's this window or this window or this window. Right. And what that means is that, um, you know, it's 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 got very routine-based. My body gets into a rhythm with it and I'm not yes. actually kind of pushing myself into different spaces all the time. I'm actually, you know, constantly, um, you know, I'm in this sort of kind of nice sustain instead of up and down. Yeah, great. Um, it's, it's when we I think there's lots of lessons changing. to be learned from the way you're living your life, actually. Well, I, I love know, it. It's not perfect. Like I say, I slip up, things happen. Um, you know, I got caught out the week after Easter and I overdid it um, and I then had, yep. to, had to have a quiet week. But it... You know, it's that routine stuff that we're coming to understand is how we actually sustain. And it doesn't mean you still have ups and downs. Disability always has ups and downs. There's always good days and bad days, weather, things happen, you know, whatever it is. Um, But it doesn't mean that, you know, you can't be doing everything you can possibly be doing to look after yourself around that. Um, You know, even, even when you've got stuff that you can't control going on. So, you know, I yeah. think I think we often think that things are out of our control, but the reality is there's a lot more choice in what we do in our lives than we think. That's right. And you've absolutely love what you're saying there. Mm. That is so true. Mm. Okay, we've got time for one more question. I'm so I, I honestly could do this for hours, which of course I have, I'm not even thinking about your health and whether you need a, a rest, but I'm loving it. Um okay, so I'm going to ask you a funny question. Is there a quirky fact about you that most people don't know that you'd be up for sharing? Oh, well, I can't talk to you about my earring collection then because everybody knows about my earring collection. <laughs> well, I don't. <laughs> I, but I have been admiring them well, through the course of this pair. interview. I have an outrageously large wardrobe of earrings. Um, and right. uh, it really is. It has special storage and everything. And um, during, <laughs> during lockdown, I actually had a, a different pair that I would share on social media every day just to get us through. Um, oh, how brilliant. And, uh, 
you know, so actually quite a lot of people know about my earring collection. But, uh, yeah, I... Well, it is a quirky fact about you. Uh, when you say I've got a big collection, can you roughly I, I, guesstimate? Well, the embarrassing thing is after I'd finished the sharing during lockdown, Jules, I then found a whole extra four slides in the storage cabinet that I'd forgotten I even owned and I thought, oh, that's where that pair went. <laughs> so actually so it's, hundreds. It's, it's hundreds. It is literally hundreds. I have no idea. And I would never be seen anywhere without earrings on. And different ones every day because oh, I put them on. I, I'm like one. I want ones I can sleep in, so I don't have to think no, about no, changing. No, no, I take them out for sleeping. Um, but I, I, I make sure if I've got a meeting at six, one of those six o'clock meetings, I get up and put the earrings back in. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> I, I do not present to the world oh, well, without the it. earrings. So okay, now one last question. I uh, got these at the Rocks oh. Market in Sydney, and they're amethysts. Well, just to, okay. So they're amethyst with a gold bit. With just if anyone plate. is listening, there we go. Yeah. they look gorgeous, and you look gorgeous. Now, um, two things I want to say. First is, if anyone <laughs> wants to get hold of you, what is the best way to do that, or to find out more about the Disability Institute? The Disability Leadership Institute has a website, so disabilityleaders.com. Dot au, um, and it Great tells name. you. Well done uh, for getting that domain. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> and and it tells you everything there is to know about us. And you can actually contact me through that website. Um, and and you're very welcome to do so. I'm also on social media. So my primary uh, social media is, of course, Twitter. Um, right. And you can also find me on LinkedIn. Um, I, I do do Facebook, but only for work, so I don't really use Facebook for other purposes. Yeah, but, um, okay. I mean, yeah. I think we all have to have our faves. Absolutely, and, uh, yeah. And and the Twitter users, uh, I I don't know anyone who is on Twitter that doesn't absolutely love it. Oh, so, it's, you know, we, well, all, we all have our faves. Happens. You know, it's, it, um, because I come yes, from that background in social actually. change, that's where it's all at. And the disability oh, community. Now I feel like I need to get um, on Disability it. community is very, very active on Twitter. It's fantastic. We love it. We love it. Uh, yeah, okay, that makes we sense. We love it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Okay, and then the other question is, do you – need help for the Disability Leaders Institute. I have obviously in the She's the Boss community, we have loads of coaches, loads of leadership experts. All of us want to give back and particularly to be able to help other people. So I guess this is going out in a podcast, so be careful what you say. But uh, are you looking for people to help as well? And is, is that, well, and what is the best way of them doing think, it? Um, Should they get you through the website? There's a number of ways that, that are probably a really good way of going about assisting us. Um, yeah, contact us through the website. That is, it is, it, it works. It really does. Um, <laughs> one of them is, is to actually think about who they're employing. And right. we can actually help with that. We have a national search register. Now, we don't do recruitment. We're not a recruitment agency, but we actually have this big network where we will actually share people's um, vacant positions or board positions or if they're looking for someone for a project or okay. a conference speaker, we actually put that out to the National Register of Disability Leaders. So, if, Oh, fantastic. Absolutely. Okay, so that's a great thing. So if people thing. want to find then, a disabled person, we are the people to come to and we will do it and it works. We have all sorts of government and corporate agencies who use us all the time. And the other thing is about thinking about who you're appointing. Um, and we can assist with that. So we're always happy to talk to people, to use that. But the thing I'd really like people to do most is to stop and look at who's around them in the same room. Very now, good if advice, if you aren't yes. seeing any disabled people, and not all of us are visible, only a small number of us you can tell by looking, if you do not know that there are any disabled people in the room you're in, 
make the difference and find out why and make it happen. Oh, I love that. One of my favourite sayings for this year, well, really since I started She's the Boss, is be that person that will mention someone else's name in a room full of opportunities. Here is a brilliant, brilliant example of how that could be really positive for people. That's it. That's it, Jules. Um, And that's how we make change. You know, you you ask the question. Ask the question. Why why, Why am I not seeing any disabled women here? Well, that's right. And why, look, there are more than four of us in the room. At least one of us should be disabled. Love it. Thank you so much. Uh, I can't wait to share this story. And I love everything that you're doing. So, um, you know, you're brilliant. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks so much for having me, Jules. It's been an absolute blast. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) My pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of She's the Boss Chats. For more information and to find out about our other initiatives, including our weekly lunch for female founders and our TV show, go to she'sTheBoss.com.au.